0: Hey guys, before we start the show, I just want to give a quick shout out to another podcast. Welcome, dear reader, to Dispatches from the Armchair. There's so much news, and the world moves so fast. What are the big ideas and historical forces that are really shaping our world? Go deeper than the headlines with Dispatches from the Armchair you are listening to the pacific war channels podcast if you wish to see the video version of these podcasts go to the pacific war channel on youtube hello there welcome back to the pacific war channel where we cover the entire history of the asia pacific war of 1937 to 1945 and all the major events that led up to it i just want to thank everybody that has supported me thus far we just hit 5,000 subs Thank you guys, you are awesome, but if you have not already done so, please hit that like and subscribe button as it would mean a lot to this ever-growing channel. And as you can see, I have two very hungry birds to feed. In this episode, we are diving into one of the most pivotal moments in the history of China, that being the Xinhai Revolution, also known as the 1911 Revolution. This will be the end of the Qing Dynasty. Beginning with its defeat during the First Opium War of 1839-1842, the Qing Imperial Court struggled to contain foreign intrusions into China. Following its defeat during the Second Opium War of 1856-1860, the Qing began a self-strengthening movement. The imperial troops proved themselves to be incompetent, however, during the many rebellions that took place in China during the 19th century, particularly the Taiping Rebellion of 1851-1864. Then the Qing Dynasty would suffer a major defeat to Japan during the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894-1895. The humiliation of this defeat led Emperor Gongzhu to make drastic reforms in 1898 known as the Hundred Day Reform. However, the conservatives in the imperial court led by Empress Dowager Xi, formed a coup to stop the reforms, placing Emperor Gongzhu under house arrest. This, alongside the rise of anti-foreign and anti-Christian sentiment in China, led to the Boxer Rebellion of 1899-1901 and yet again another humiliating defeat for the Qing Dynasty. All of these events, alongside the unequal treaties associated with them, led the Chinese populace to believe their government was too weak and appeasing to foreign powers, setting into motion the stage for many attempts at revolution which would finally collapse the crumbling Qing Dynasty. After the humiliating Boxer Protocol came into effect, Empress Dowager, Zixi, began to be more compliant with reforms in order to prolong her dynasty's life. By 1905, Zixi approved a commission for the study of foreign political systems and a precursor to a constitutional reform in China. Sweeping societal changes occurred, such as the overhauling of the Qing bureaucracy. Policing, commerce, communications, foreign affairs, law and education all saw new departments created. Prohibitions on Manchu-Han marriages were lifted, foot binding, and opium smoking were banned. Yet, as radical as these reforms all were, they were poorly implemented and far too late to the ailing dynasty. On November the 14th, 1908, Emperor Guangxu died at the age of 37 of arsenic poisoning. And then the very next day Empress Dowager Cixi died in her sleep at the age of 73. It is widely argued that Zhu Ji had poisoned Emperor Guangzhou, fearing he would reverse policies she made after her death. Yikes! Before her death, Zhu Zhi chose Puyi, who became the Chuangtong Emperor at the age of two in December 1908. Yet for all intents and purposes, the Qing Dynasty effectively died with Guangzhou and Zhu The two-year-old emperor and his politically inexperienced father, Prince Chun, acting as Prince Regent, could not hope to provide the strong leadership required to keep the Qing Dynasty together. Now let me just please explain, the purpose of this video is not to go over all the revolutionary groups that wanted to overthrow the Qing dynasty, for various reasons. I would have to make an entire series dedicated to that as you can imagine. Instead, I will be focusing mostly on Sun Yat-sen's role, and the revolutionary groups he was part of. Sun Yat-sen was born on November the 12th, 1866, in the village of Qihang in Guangdong, with a cultural background of Hakka and Cantonese. After finishing primary education, he moved to Honolulu, where he lived for many years, obtaining his secondary education in Hawaii. He returned to China at the age of 17, where he would eventually study medicine at Guangzhou Boji Hospital. Like so many youth, Sun became increasingly frustrated by the conservative Qing government's refusal to modernize in the late 1880s. This led him to quit his medical practice and devote himself to transforming China as a revolutionary. He left China to return to Hawaii and founded the Revive China Society in 1894. Members were drawn mainly from Chinese expatriates, In the same year the Fuen Literacy Society merged with the Hong Kong chapter of the Revive China Society, making Sun the secretary and Yun Kuan the president of the larger Revive China Society. In October 1895, the Revive China Society planned an uprising to capture Guangzhou in one strike. Lu Haodong was tasked with designing the revolutionaries' blue sky with a white sun flag. However, details of their plans were leaked to the Qing government, who quickly began to arrest revolutionaries like Lu Haodong and execute them. The first Guangzhou uprising was a failure, forcing Sun to go into exile and spend some time in Japan. He was soon supported by the Japanese politician Tien Miyazuki. In October 1900, Sun launched the Huizhou uprising, attacking Huizhou and Guangdong authorities. Sun was in Taiwan securing troops and weapons to be transported from there to the revolutionary forces attacking Huizhou. This time he appealed to the Triads for help, but the uprising was a failure after only two weeks of fighting. The Japanese Prime Minister Itohiro Wumi prohibited any aid to the revolutionaries from Taiwan. Sun went about his exile visiting the United States, Canada, and Europe raising money for his revolutionary party to support further uprisings in China. By 1905, he returned to Japan and successfully united the revived China Society with the Hong Xing and Guangfu Hui and other revolutionary groups to establish the Tongmeng Hui on August 20, 1905. Sun was the leader of the Tongmeng Hui and announced that his organization's goal was to expel the Tartar barbarians, to revive Xianghui, to establish a republic, and to distribute land equally among the people. These sets of goals were created to meet the objectives of republicans, nationalists, and socialists that made up the various members of the Tongmenghui. The far-right wing Japanese ultra-nationalist group Black Dragon Society supported Sun against the Manchus, believing that overthrowing the Qing government would allow Japan to take over the Manchu homeland of Manchuria without opposition from Han Chinese. Even the Yakuza helped, hoping to have some hand in a future opium trade. The Tongmenghui began to sponsor and organize uprisings in China. In 1907, six unsuccessful uprisings occurred against the Qing government in Huanggang, Huzhou, Anqing, Qingzhou, and Yunyongguang. While the Tongmenghui had vast amounts of financial support from overseas Chinese and Japanese groups, what they desperately needed was military support. Beginning in 1908, the Tongmenghui began to focus on infiltrating the regional armies known as the New Army groups in China. More unsuccessful uprisings sprang from 1908 to 1911, such as the Qinlian Uprising, Kuquau Uprising, Piying Uprising, Gengju New Army Uprisings, and the Second Guangzhou Uprising. When the anti-Qing revolution came, it began spontaneously rather than at the command of Sun Yat-sen. After the Boxer Rebellion, many Western powers began to invest in railways in their spheres of influence within China. Railway construction took place across the Yangxi Valley, Kunming, Shandong, and Manchuria. With permission from the Qing government, provinces began to construct their own railways such as the Canton Hankou Railway and the xichuan Hankou Railway in Guangdong, Hunan, Sichuan, and Jubei. As a result of the indemnity payments of the Boxer Protocol, the Qing court was forced to turn to Shen Xuanhui in 1910 to secure foreign loans by nationalizing the railway lines. This policy met with much resistance, particularly in Sichuan where a resistance movement known as the Sichuan Railway Protection Movement rose. As usual, the Qing suppressed the movement with force and by August 11th this was met with massive strikes and rallies in Chengdu. The Qing government ordered more vigorous quelling of the movement and troops were ordered to open fire on protesters. Two revolutionary groups based in Wuhan, the Literacy Society and the Progressive Association led by Zhang Yui and Sun Wu had been in talks with the Tongmengwei to collaborate in new uprisings. On October 9, 1911, Sun Wu was supervising the making of explosives in the Russian concession in Hankou when one of the explosives went off unexpectedly, hurting Sun Wu and sending him to the hospital. The hospital staff soon discovered Sun Wu's identity and alerted the Qing authorities. Having been discovered, the revolutionaries within the regional army in Wuxiang faced imminent arrest by the Qing government. Zhang Yiwu of the Literacy Society immediately launched the Plan Uprising, but the entire plans were leaked to the viceroy of Hu Guang, who ordered the arrest and execution of the revolutionary leaders. On October the 10th, Wu Xiaolin, a provisional commander within the regional army named Huang Ying, led the revolutionary units to stage a mutiny against the garrison in Hu Guang. They tried to capture the residence of the viceroy, leading the viceroy to flee, and the Qing garrison fell into chaos. 500 Manchu soldiers were killed, with 300 captured by noon, October the 11th. The mutineers established a military government representing Hubei province with Yi Yuanhong as a temporary leader. Then they raised the iron blood 18 star flag, signaling other provinces to join their cause. By October the 12th, they marched on capturing Han Kuo and Hanyang. In response to the capture of Hankou Kuo and Hanyang, the Qing government sent Yin and Feng Guozhang to lead the Biang army against the revolutionary. On October the 18th, 1,000 revolutionaries attacked Lu Mao train station north in Hankou. They managed to derail a train holding Qing forces killing over 400. The Qing were forced to retreat. On October the 22nd, Hunan and Jiangxi province both declared their independence from the Qing dynasty. Yinxiang was removed from command and formal power was given to Yuan Shikai who recently had been called back from retirement. On October the 26th, Yan Shukai sent the Biang Army to attack Hankou with heavy artillery and machine guns. 500 revolutionaries were killed, and by October the 27th, fierce house-to-house fighting was raging in Yuji Mao. On October the 28th, Hong Jing and Song Zhao Ren, two leaders of the Tongmenghui, arrived in Hankou bringing 1000 reinforcements. Due to inferior arms, the revolutionaries suffered heavy casualties and began to raise Hankou for days until November, the first in which the Beiyang army finally took Hankou. By November the 3rd, 11 other provinces broke away from the Qing Dynasty and many naval commanders defected. In Hanyang, over 13,000 revolutionaries began to amass to face the 30,000 men strong Beiyang army in Hankou. Yuan Xiukai was determined to stop the momentum of the revolutionaries and launched an invasion of Hanyang on November 21st. One Biang force attacked Xiaoguan, while the main forces clashed at Sanyaochao, leading to seven days of fierce house-to-house combat. The Biang army was gradually able to fight their way to the city center, forcing revolutionaries to retreat to Hanyang. The revolutionaries lost over 3,300, with many residents dying in the process. By December the 1st, Yan Shikai agreed to a ceasefire, beginning talks with the revolutionaries in Hankou. Yan Shikai sent envoys to Shanghai to negotiate with Sun Yat-sen, who returned from exile to Shanghai on December 25, 1911. Now since the outbreak of the 1911 revolution, the Qing court was aware the only capable military force to quell the revolution was the Biang army. The Qing court repeatedly made offers to Yan Shikai, offering him viceroy of Hugang Gang and then prime minister of the imperial cabinet. However, knowing he had firm control over the Biang army, Yuan Shukai began to negotiate with the revolutionaries on behalf of the Qing to see what he could personally win from them. On November the 1st, the Qing government scrambled to retain power, appointing Yuan Shukai as prime minister of the new imperial cabinet, replacing Prince Qing. The Qing had even tried to invite Yuan Shukai to join a new republic based on a constitutional monarchy, but all these efforts were far too late. Yuan Shukai pressured, the Empress Dowager Yang Yu, with a threat to the royal families not being spared if they did not abdicate before the revolutionaries reached Beijing. But if they had agreed to the abdication, a new provincial government would allow them to live. On February 3, 1912, Empress Dowager Yang Yu gave Yuan Shukai full permission to negotiate the abdication of the Qing Emperor. On December the 29th, a meeting of representatives from provinces in Nanjing elected Sun Yat sen as the provincial president and January the 1st, 1912 became the first day of the first year of the new provisional government of the Republic of China. As momentous as this moment was, the new provisional government was weak militarily, and began to negotiate with the Qing government through Yan Shukai. You see, the revolutionaries basically controlled most of South China at this point, while the Qing court still held control over the North. During negotiations, Yan Shukai agreed to arrange the abdication of Emperor Pu Yi in return for being granted the position of President of the Republic of China. China now had a choice of two republican presidents, one, a well-credentialed nationalist who had dedicated his entire life to political modernization, the other, a self-serving military officer who controlled the strongest army in all of China. Sun Yat-sen agreed to Yuan Shukai's presidency, fearing a civil war or foreign invasion might occur, but asked that the capital of the new government be situated in Nanjing. Yuan Shukai wanted the capital to be close to his base of military power in Beijing, The revolutionaries compromised and established the New Republic in Beijing with Yan Shukai sworn in as Provisional President of the Republic of China on March 10, 1912. The flag of the New Republic would be the banner of five races under one union, the five races being Red Han, Yellow Manchu, Blue Mongols, White Muslims, and Black Tibetans. The government based in Beijing became known as the Biang government, but was not internationally recognized as a legitimate government until 1928. The first National Assembly election was held from December 1912 to January 1913, with the Kuomintang being formed on August 2, 1912. The KMT held the majority of seats, 269 out of 596 in the House of Representatives and 123 seats of the 274 seats for the Senate. Song Jiaren of the KMT was regarded as the prime candidate for the position of first Prime Minister of the New Republic. Song's main goals were to ensure that the independence of China's elected assemblies were properly protected from the influence of the president. Yuan Shikai by this point, was dominating the provisional cabinet and overexerting his executive power. Song was going to limit the powers of the president, and Yuan Shukai was definitely not going to allow this to happen. On March 20, 1913, Song was assassinated at the Shanghai railway station by a lone gunman, Wu Shuying. He was allegedly hired by Yuan Shikai, but there lacked significant evidence to implicate him. Tensions between the KMT and Yuan Shikai would continue to intensify. The elected parliament tried to gain control over Yuan Shikai and develop a permanent constitution to hold a legitimate open presidential election. Yuan Shikai thus cracked down on the KMT, beginning in 1913 by suppressing and bribing KMT members in both the legislative chambers. Seeing the pain on the wall, Sun Yat-sen fled to Japan in August 1913 and called for a second revolution against Yuan Shikai. By this point unfortunately, Yan Shikai had used the military to take over the entire government. He dissolved the assemblies and replaced them with a newly formed Council of State under Yuan Qiyi, his trusted Biang lieutenant and prime minister. Then Yan Shikai had himself elected president for the next five years while ordering the dissolution of the KMT. The second revolution was a failure. They could not compete with Yan Shikai's military dominance. By January 1914, China's parliament was formally dissolved. Yuan Shikai convened a body of 66 for a cabinet on May the 1, 1st, 1914 to produce a constitutional compact, effectively replacing the provisional constitution and giving the presidency sweeping powers. Yuan Shikai reorganized the provincial governments, each province had a military governor and each controlled their own army. Yet despite his overwhelming power, Yuan Shikai was still not satisfied and wanted to establish an autocratic rule. On November the 20th, 1915, Yuan Shikai held a Specially convened representative assembly, which voted unanimously to offer Yuan Shukai the throne. On December 12, 1915, Yuan Shukai reluctantly accepted the proclamation of himself as emperor of the new empire of China under the era name of Hong Yuan Shukai would reign as emperor for 83 days before dying of uremia on June 6, 1916, at the age of 56. Yuan Shikai's death left a fractured republic which quickly became a power vacuum. Because of Yuan Shikai's policies to promote regional governors with their own militaries, China fell into what is called the Warlord Era. So let's just summarize everything we just learned. The Qing Dynasty crumbled because of a century of humiliation involving military defeats, government corruption, and social upheaval. Many revolutionary groups formed to fight for independence or change and Sun Yat-sen's movement ended up winning out to form the new Republic of China, Yuan Shikai used his powerful influence to play all sides in order to secure himself as emperor of this new China. Yuan Shikai's efforts helped usher in what is known as the Warlord Era, and China would suffer tremendously. I really hope you enjoyed this episode, and uh, it was an enormous event. I hope I did it justice with my brutal summarization. If you've not already done so, please hit that like and subscribe button and leave a comment. It really helps this channel dearly. As you know, I have my little bird friends to feed. This has been the Pacific War Channel, over and out. Hello there. Welcome back to the Pacific War Channel. The channel recovered the entire history of the Asia-Pacific War of 1937 to 1945. And we have yet to even get close to the start of it, but uh, here we go again. Crawling forward. Here with uh, my friend... um, One
1: month at a time.
0: Mr. Economics, who, if he ever watched uh, these episodes on YouTube, would realize I keep putting the stonks meme over you. I know you do. (laughs) I keep it. Oh,
1: I know. It's
0: okay. Reiteration, to the people who are listening to this on, um, I don't know, Podbean or... Whatever podcast platform you're listening to, I am on YouTube, so there is a a video version of this, which is a little bit more entertaining. You get to see our ugly mugs and us sweating profusely because there's a heat wave in Quebec right now. Yeah, it's it's brutal. Yeah, and it's uh, uh, kind of hot. Somebody save us! It's rare
1: Canadians gonna ask for ice, but uh, send us (laughs) some, please.
0: It's uh, it's been a while, actually. By the time this premieres it's quite a few weeks and uh i will talk about why that's happening uh shortly uh but just to open up as everyone knows who's a long-time listener these podcasts uh, i call them discussions are you know after the episodes that premiere on youtube so this episode was on the Xinhai revolution also known as the 1911 revolution
1: because like you guys i don't understand half of this historic shit and i need a little more context Uh, history in general is not my forte particularly Asian history so uh, it's it's nice to delve in a little deeper and uh, see a few things that I didn't quite get or maybe expand on some things that you guys want to hear more about too
0: and so (laughs) before we get into uh, the content of this episode I want to maybe acknowledge one rather I won't call uh, I'll say very passionate commentator who uh, got in a debate with somebody on the chat in uh, when this episode was premiering uh, about uh, in reference if you're watching the video right now to the little poster behind me uh, to describe to the audience uh, for just audio listeners it's a 1941 poster of a map of Asia drawn up by Japan at the time so if you look to the top right corner if you can actually read Japanese, you would know it's, uh, it's, basically it's slanderous propaganda by the, uh, East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. So, the Japanese propaganda during the war, which was, uh, We'll call it fascist. It's not exactly fascist, but we'll call it fascism. So it was kind of uh, a racial hierarchy built upon. um, Japan's at the top, and all the other Asian subgroups need to be beneath them because they're racially inferior to them, but they're going to control all of Asia. So this is a horrifyingly terrible propaganda tool that was used against all the Asiatic countries, including India, for that matter. And uh, Japan went about raping and murdering all these people anyway, so they didn't really buy into it.
1: Well, to be honest, those hierarchies exist anywhere. Like, you got regular white people, and then you got rednecks. It's just, you know.
0: The only way to describe it is kind of like uh, in Canada, when we had immigration policies at the coming of the 19th century, we barred, like, we called them, like, southern Europeans, Italians, Greeks, and all that. we had a racial prejudice against them. They weren't, uh, quote-unquote, full European. What was white was never... uh, fundamentally what you think of today with white skin color like they thought like nordics were different people germans were not white at some points it's, it's really messed up and weird if you dwell in american history in mm-hmm. the 1800s for example but anyways this commentator who i'm just gonna he must be from mainland china not to say anything about that uh he saw it as being um in his words i was uh basically a 1940s japanese propagandist and on par with being an actual Nazi, he said that this was as bad as like showing a swastika you know a swastika flag or having a KKK outfit on or something, because I was espousing like a horrible message. It's just a replica of a map. Of course, it has the co prosperity sphere slogan on it because, yeah, it was made by Japan at that time and everything. That they made had that on it
1: well, not to mention we're talking about events from that time period it'd be nice to have a map that reflects that area during that time period
0: i literally was using it because it's actually it's a unique part of history i can't show it on the video but if you've ever noticed there's a globe here the globe i have here is actually made in 1941 as well and it has uh actually mislabelings and misspellings of countries but it has something like you know french indochina is on here because it was made at that time or the Kingdom of Siam, because you know now it's Thailand, it used to be Siam, it, it changes names. These are like artifacts of the time period. I am, um, despite what it looks like, I'm not a 1941 Japanese uh, fascist, yeah. propagandist, uh, out to raise the morale for the Rising Sun Empire. I don't believe the Rising Sun Empire is gonna come back and dominate China. Uh, as this guy might believe. I, I don't know. This guy, maybe? Language barrier. It was it was really, like when I was looking at the comments, I, I understood that there was kind of a language barrier there. And he did make notice, and I want to point this out, because if, if you're there, dude, you made one comment that bothered me. He was noting my samurai sword here, but he didn't comment on the fact I have a World War I Chinese saber that I always have presented here with the samurai sword. So I found that kind of nasty that he would point out the fact that i have a samurai sword that quote unquote i think he said would uh, use was used to cut off the heads of many allies and chinese people for that you know instance but i mean like i don't know what this guy's pointing at these are artifacts of the war if i had a german luger it doesn't mean i'm propagating the idea of executions of uh, you know allied prisoners of war during world war Two. anyways so acknowledging that one because uh this guy debated with some other dude defending me in the comment section like 10 comments each. It was pretty weird. And, uh, anyone wants to jump in there, you can jump in there. It's a, it's a fun time. I've had a lot of weird comments when it comes to this. And I thought it was important to bring this up because this subject is... I, don't, I really had a hard time with this one. Talking about this one is like when it gets political. This is the founding of, and I'm going to say the T word, two countries, kind of. You know, the things that happen here are going to result in a action in mainland China that will eventually result in the formation of Taiwan and uh, Communist China later. This is the most arguably important moment in Chinese history. Uh, It's also called the first revolution, whereas the real revolution the second revolution is the communist takeover of China, right? Which to each their own not here propagating any messages towards the people's Republic of China or Taiwan. I'm not taking any case I'm just a historian telling the facts. There's no biases here And again, to the guy who uh, made all those claims about me having a Japanese spin on things, I've been covering Chinese history much more than the Japanese on this channel, and I've been pretty sympathetic towards the Chinese cause, I found. And it's not hard to do so. The Japanese were pretty malicious at this time period. It's hard to be on their side, quote-unquote. So, yeah. At least that's out of the way. So we'll get on to the actual subject matter. Which and, is, and let's not forget, you've also been accused
1: of uh, going against the Japanese when it came to your atrocities video. And
0: uh, Oh, God, yeah.
1: So it's, I mean, if, if you're against Japanese and Chinese, well...
0: I guess I'm, I don't know, a double agent yeah. for the Rising Sun Empire. That, that must be it. Yeah, so people are probably like, what... Else going on with this podcast but uh so getting back to the subject matter uh sometimes in the past i've actually summarized the event but i really don't want to do that anymore because go watch the episode and this one's so complicated as you already know while my brain yeah,
1: still hurts which is why we're here because i need a little bit of clarification on this one
0: to uh maybe summarize uh, a little bit about this channel you know we were covering from the beginning 1830s China all the main events that begins this 100 years of humiliation. So we're talking about the first opium, opium war, we got the second opium war, we got the Taiping Rebellion that kills an unbelievable amount of people, Sino-Japanese war, the first Sino-Japanese war, uh the Boxer Rebellion, the Russo-Japanese War which you think doesn't have much to do with China but they fought inside China. It actually affected China greatly. And, Hurt them economically, if you think about it, and they lost a lot of territory, and it was another, you know, it's insulting that people are fighting on your land, and then inevitably you lose more territory to them. It's pretty mind-boggling. Yep. But the Xinhai Revolution is, it embodies the collapse, finally, of the Qing Dynasty
1: which we've said in about 12 episodes so far but mm. <laughs> there's a reason why they call it the hundred years it's because it's it's been slowly crumbling for a while and now it's finally falling off the cliff
0: and boy it's a uh, it's not like the exact falling off the cliff you would think in all the histories of things that happen in the world it uh it wasn't one revolution for that matter to kind of count it's about 37 different uprisings of which there's actually other countries that form resistance movements and break off of what is called china that time like there's a tibetan uh, uprising a mongolian one there's many many different groups that tried to break off and it happens over the course of many many years despite uh, the fact we do know it as the 1911 revolution that is Mm. in reference to kind of the big one that put the nail in the coffin but uh, the Qing Dynasty lasted for—I gotta read this—276 years, yeah. And imperial rule in China had lasted for 2,132 years in total. So this was breaking, if you think about it, love. history that goes back to ancient times. It's—it's uh, it's actually pretty ground. It's—it's it's crazy. And it's a moment in time where. So many things happen that it gets so complicated that I honestly couldn't dedicate the whole episode to going into it. I, I chose intentionally to be more vague and to brutally summarize it. I think the episode was only about 14 minutes or something. Yeah. And I did that. It a was a
1: short one, but this. Yeah. It's difficult when you're spamming all that information and uh, trying to figure out who's who and what's what. But it seems to me like there was kind of a main protagonist in this uh, that you talked about quite a bit, although I don't remember his name. Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Yeah. He is a Chinese Hawaiian doctor, which you're going to have to explain that one to me. <laughs> well,
0: he, he, he himself is not Hawaiian. He had family that was in Honolulu who uh, one of them was a very rich uh, landowner who was okay. one of the main donors to the cause. Actually, he, he donated a lot of his produce to, to the cause. It's, it's funny to say that the foundations of the revolutions was, you know, as you would imagine, built on funding. Because you can't have an uprising without certain things. And financial mm-hmm. funding was necessary. And if you think about it, this one of the most influential people in, in human history, uh, he was basically the finance guy. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who was fighting to do fundraisers the entire time. And I don't really go into it so much in the episode, but uh, it's pretty crazy when you go into how he funded all of this. And I, I, I did a lot of research to try and showcase the nitty-bitty information and kind of the weird nature of dirty things he had to do to get this money which i found really interesting which uh, maybe people aren't so knowledgeable about because if you hear you know sun yat sen you immediately you know what comes to mind is you know he's this guy who starts the great revolution that brings down the qing dynasty and then it's all stolen from him in the episode you know we mentioned that the guy that's been mentioned many times yuan Chi-Kai, this great military uh, general, he is in a position where he controls the military of this fragmented small pocket of China, because China is really breaking at this point. And uh, the Qing Dynasty, they have uh, a little like toddler as an emperor at this point, Puyi. And there's nothing they can do. The army will listen to Yan Chikaï because he's a proven leader and he controls already the strongest part of the military in the first place. So when they're putting down what is the Rebellion, at this point he could easily quell it but he chooses to play both sides as I say in the episode the imperial court and the royal family there they're saying to him okay can you suppress you know the rebels that stop this and he tells them oh I uh, I don't have the necessary artillery I, I can't seem to do it. it's taking longer and he's lying And then what he's really doing is he's negotiating with the rebels because he's... Of course.
1: Trying to see. He's playing both sides of the fence, trying to see one who will come out on top because he can influence that directly. Exactly. And figuring out which one he's going to be better off with in the long run, which is...
0: And it works completely in his favor. As anyone who knows the story, Yuan Shikai is kind of a villain. I would say to most mainland Chinese, well, after this event, before he, I would argue, he's kind of a hero. He did a lot for China before. You can't argue that the guy didn't do stuff, you know, for China because he he led for a very long time these militaries. I mean, you know, he's he's almost, I mean, he's not on par with Li Hongzhang, but uh, he, he's under him a little bit. But he ends up negotiating with the rebels, and he gets, you know, the emperor to abdicate and to take over. And they have a free election, Sun Yat-sen is elected by, you know, the group to be the first president of this new republic. And Yuan Shikai just has a fit, he does what he has to do to get rid of uh, Sun Yat-sen, he takes it for himself. And then he pulls uh, the old kind of Hitler-esque move of gaining power and he becomes a dictator and that's not enough. And he says, well, screw it, I'm going to let's make up a position, I'm the emperor, and he makes his own royal family, and he just dies. We're in the midst of it, leaving a more fractured China, which is now run by all these regional warlords that he put into position because he mm-hmm. could control them, arguably. He probably had a system of controlling these people. And then he dies, and now China is literally in the warlord period where yep. there's nothing. There, there is a quote-unquote republic, but nah, no, not really. It's not really in charge. And uh, actually, someone mentioned in the comments, um, my thumbnails, I put flags on them on the videos, and I had put the you know, the Beiyang, the Republic of China flag, which is the uh, the five colors of the five different peoples of China, and behind it is the Qing Dynasty. And I think the guy was angry because I didn't put the Kuomintang uh, flag, you know, the blue with the white sun, which represents the Sun yat party. And anyways, I didn't want to be political, so I was just putting it in chronological order to that guy in the audience. The only purpose of putting the flags the way I did is because. I'm covering a few years after this event, and technically, China becomes the Republic of China as we know, and that's why I use that flag. And I didn't want to make a political statement because YouTube doesn't like that, and YouTube's probably not going to like this episode because it talks about politics in China. Not good.
1: Well, gotta cover it at some point, but
0: uh... yeah, this episode I was dreading doing this episode because I'm uh, I've said it multiple times I very, very knowledgeable of Japanese history, particularly in the Pacific War or the 19th century, 20th century for that matter. China, I've had to learn on the go, and I've done great efforts to learn everything I could, but uh, when I came to this event, my God, I had the work cut out for me. I had to read an entire book to try and really grasp it, and that covered so many different uprisings simultaneously that I didn't talk about in this episode, there's no way I could. There's 37 of them, and yeah. they all, they're notching. Like, if the if the wall... Of China is there. All these little uprisings are just breaking it piece by piece, and it really collectively made it crumble. But as I said in the episode, ironically, the um, the uprising that finally broke them was one that Sun Yat-sen was not kind of part of. It was a revolt against some railroads being built that angered people in the Shandong area, and uh, Sun Yat-sen got caught with his pants down because the revolution started, and he had to like rush over. So it was kind of funny. But Sun Yat-sen in general, he was part of at least uh, you know 10 or a dozen of these revolutions, I think. Yeah, I coined it to about 10 out of the 37, he directly was, you know, funding. Because that was honestly what he was doing the whole time, was he was going, uh, he was in exile most of the time in different countries like Canada, United States, uh, Japan mostly. Uh, the, the truth is, he, he presented himself a lot of the times as a Japanese person, which is... Anus thing to say, I guess, at this point, but it's true. The Japanese had very nefarious reasons to support him, and they are the main backers of this. Uh, So financially, um, he had to raise funds around the world, and he did it in really some some weird ways involving mafias and stuff. Uh, For instance, the Black Dragon Society in China wanted to support him because they thought if they weakened you know, the government enough of China and broke the Qing dynasty that it would leave Manchuria open, which, as I've said, in multiple episodes, Japan's very, top, very big money, uh, yeah.
1: money area. But
0: so, yeah, Japan's top priority has always been to take Manchuria. So the Black Dragon Society was working with another society called the Yakuza because they had a interest in not only securing Manchuria, but opening up an opium trade there. Ironically. Yeah. It all goes back to opium. We know China
1: does well with opium. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, if you look back in history in general, there's a lot of times where countries are a little bit chaotic. There's uprisings, wars, things like that. And in many, many cases, the ruling power or the overthrowing one are always going to make deals with either mafias or underground figures or stuff like that, because a lot of times they control the money. And also they, 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 they have more power than a lot of people give them credit for in terms of trade, in terms of travel, in terms of access, uh, supplies, weapons, It's funny all you these things, that. especially in those days. So,
0: It's funny you mention that because when it came to the overseas uh, traveling, setting up of fundraising events and everything, in, in Canada particularly, Sonia uh, contacts who helped him enormously overseas were the triads. So we have all the main kind of mafias in yeah. the world that exist till, you know, today that we're helping him out. And uh, it, it actually, I was reading about because I didn't know much myself. It turns out the triads did a lot. They put people in seats at these fundraisers. I mean, they put a lot of people in stadiums to make it seem more packed, to get more people to show up. Like they did everything. And you know, Sun Yat-sen, he, uh, he did everything you can think of to raise money. I mean, he would pay. You know, he would say, uh, "I'm going to sell bonds at like ten dollars, for instance." And yeah. when you redeem them, when the republic is formed, will will be worth a hundred dollars to you. Or, if someone was extremely wealthy, he would say, "I will give you exclusive mining rights in China because I will be the president of this new republic, and yeah. we're going to give you extraterritoriality, and you get money."
1: Well, it's the same idea as the U.S. selling war bonds and stuff. I mean, the U.S. fundraising yeah. for World War One and World War Two was just massive and uh people who didn't have money were putting money into this one on the chance of making some but two if you can sell the cause people will always put their money in doesn't matter what it is
0: i do have uh it was not easy to find literal figures on the money but i did find sporadic things from different places where he was getting this money and uh, it really depends on the time and place but he could be, where was it? I had one place. Yeah, in Hong Kong. And it's one of the early days of his fundraising in 1895. So this is very early. He was selling shares at about $10 silver value with an expected return of hundred dollars. In 1905, he raised over $2 million in Singapore by selling bonds at 250 each with the expectation of thousand dollars back. Of which many of these people did not get their money, by the way. Yeah. But that goes outside. And,
1: and it's interesting. You have to take into account one of the main reasons why you had to do so much fundraising overseas rather than in mainland China is, one, again, China very fractured. So when you have so many different groups all looking out for themselves, it's hard to rally as many to your cause. But the other thing is, during the Qing dynasty, China was still very much into, you know, one of the main support of their economy was all farmland. Mm. Over 80% of the population lived in farmland out in the country. These weren't wealthy people for the most part. Obviously, you had the aristocracy or the higher-ups, but, you know, at the end of the day, when 80% of your population doesn't have that money, you got to go somewhere else to get it, especially if you need a lot of it very fast. You know, rather than nickel and diming farmers for a dollar a piece or fifty cents a piece, he goes to the bigwigs and looks for hundreds or thousands. Yep. So that took him overseas, and it's only after the Republic of China was formed that they really started to industrialize. And I'm sure we'll get into that in some future episodes, but or try to industrialize, so to speak.
0: It's, but, uh, uh, it's so the the uh, particularly in the period you can't even talk because in the World War One. This well, is from, like, 15
1: to 37, yeah, a lot of things are happening in China. And I'm actually going to do some research when we get
0: into that period specifically. But, Because, uh... yeah, Yuan Shikai, he dies half, he, he dies, like, at the offset of, what, uh, World War One, And it's just like, ugh, China is in such... It's just, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. And then in the 1920s, they kind of get their legs a little bit. And they form... Mm-hmm. And politically, it's there's you know... The party that Sun Yat-sen eventually founds because you know in this whole episode he starts off with this rev- Revive China society, it merges evolves into the And then that emerges and becomes the Kuomintang which we know even to, to, to today I mean has you know, origins and go all the way into Taiwan to today And there's all sorts of political stuff that could be said about that But I am not an expert on that nor do I want to even talk about it I mean as far as the second sino-japanese war is concerned I could talk about Anything the KMT does, but I don't want to go into the greater politics of it. Nor do I want to go into the Chinese Civil War necessarily. That's going to spring from this as well, because later in the future, you know, in the future, the Communists will rise, and then they're going to butt heads with what is the Nationalist Party that was finding its foundations here. And it's so much more confusing than that. As you can imagine, you've probably heard the name Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai Shek. Yep, they both were inspired by. Sun Yat-sen, um, Chiang Kai-shek was actually under Sun Yat-sen, he was in his party and helped him, in one of the uprisings, Chiang Kai-shek fought, I f- believe, if not, I don't know if he did physical combat, I think he did, and yeah, so this is the foundation of just so much history, and before it is so much history, I mean, this is the leading up to the big crumbling of the Qing dynasty, as we know it, and it did go out with a bang, I mean, it's kind of weird how Empress Dowager, she, she's on her deathbed, and she quote-unquote, allegedly poisons, you know, the Emperor the day after, so he can't It, it is it. a
1: bit of a coincidence, but, uh, you know, we can only
0: speculate as to that. Yeah. Funny fact, uh, J.P. Morgan was approached as one of the main donors uh, for all this. They were trying to get $10 million out of him, but I didn't, I don't, I don't think I have the quote here, but I remember it goes something like, he was already dealing with a nation At the moment and they were talking about building another one he said why would i bother i'm already making money so he didn't go for it yeah that's just a big name amongst many others Uh, it was over overseas chinese people that were kind of the big backers financially that really brought this and i mean from the from the peasant in the field to someone with a big business there was people like there was one story i think was a guy from possibly southeast asia or even the philippines he gave his life savings and it amounted to not much and like it, it's just one of those stories where he believed so much in the cause because he had been from mainland like China. Like I said, if
1: you can sell the cause, yeah they did. It, 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 it's gonna happen. but that's why most of these people who weren't living in mainland China anymore, obviously they're not living in that fractured society, not knowing who to pay taxes up to, not knowing what's going on. Everything was a bit in shambles and there wasn't as much money to be made. whereas those who left the country, went elsewhere be it overseas to the americas to europe to wherever I, I have a feeling they were making a much better living which is why they could donate so much more
0: yeah and it was rough being overseas because you have to imagine this is you know, particularly for the united states and canada there's anti-immigration acts like the chinese head tax for example was happening like uh i think chen had to present himself probably as a japanese guy a few times just to go to some of these places because you know there's all sorts of barriers to, to stop him from entering certain countries, even though he was very, I think he was a very liked person, I mean, he was a very good public speaker, that's how he pulled this off, so, people were enthusiastic about, about seeing him, and he, he even made a presence in Europe, it's not talked about as much as North America, but he was in Europe as well, and I, I don't know, maybe he didn't receive as much funding, most of the money, from what I can tell, did come from Southeast Asia, and, uh, he almost got a ton of money from the Philippines, but it was a, what we would call a a dirty transaction. What he was doing was he was trying to be the middleman to get arms from Japan to the Philippines, which would have been used to attack the Americans who were occupying it. So that didn't go well. And he would have, uh, I don't know if he got the money, he would have received $100,000 for this whole ordeal. So it was money for the cause. And he put everything into the cause. This guy did not uh, pocket it by any means. At all, and uh, I, I present it almost like it's kind of hard to. It's, it's weird to say bloodless. It wasn't a bloodless conflict. It's just it's really hard to gauge because there's. It's not one uprising. It's thirty-seven. If you went on Wikipedia, you know the number they give you. It's like they're estimating a hundred and seventy thousand casualties for the the Qing military and about fifty thousand for the revolutionaries. But those those are casualties. That doesn't actually tell you deaths, and it doesn't tell you the executions of civilians and all the horrible stuff that was probably occurring so i would imagine maybe like a hundred thousand people probably died that's a ballpark in a number but uh i mean in chinese history look at anything the Taiping rebellion like the death toll of that is absolutely insane and we're not taught we're not taught about that in the western world and it rivals like world war one
1: yeah but that's it and you know you have all of these small rebellions going on everywhere, and it goes back to what we've talked about before, where you have a nation so divided, and now all of a sudden they're getting hit all over the map, and it's one after another after another, just little yep. j- j- just little pecks at the armor here and there. And uh, But the dynasty finally collapses. Qing dynasty is over.
0: And now there's that awkward period and I won't reiterate or summarize. In the episode you see that they go through this whole political conflict where they're trying to elect leaders. And inevitably this republic forms, but then the guy who starts the republic and gets dictatorial powers, he's number one Generalissimo, uh Yuan Shikai. He decides it's not enough and he, he wants to be an emperor. And he dies not too long after and then it just completely crumbles. And what you see for the next while is there is a nationalist government in charge of the Republic, but the Republic is a few provinces in kind of central China, whereas like a place, let's say like Manchuria, is fully controlled now by a warlord. Right. It's pretty much independent. And uh, to use that example, the guy who's in charge of Manchuria eventually, he doesn't see eye to eye with the Republic of China for most part.
1: So he just does whatever he wants in yeah. the meantime.
0: And he's off fighting the Soviets or the Japanese. And he still doesn't see eye to eye with the <laughs> nationalists. So it's it's an awkward situation. You have everybody who has their own needs. Like the Mongolians might want their... you know They don't want to be part of this. They're getting attacked by the Soviets and occupied and all that stuff. Even the Japanese occupy them at some point. Got Tibetans. Today, that's a hot button issue. <laughs> There's all sorts of groups. Because China is not just a place with one type of people there's no multiple ethnic very, groups <laughs> very diverse now at what point do
1: they finally start to rally all that together into the quote-unquote republic
0: even that's hard to say so there's going to be a civil war between the communists and what is the party that sonya said kind of started here the Kuomintang. we're going to call them the nationalist party um there's a civil war the nationalists Kind of, they 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 basically will say they win the day, okay. and the communists are pushed off, but they're not dead. When they're pushed off in the late twenties, this nationalist republic, they're they're basically facing the behemoth that is the Japanese Empire, because the Japanese are just they're salivating. The,
1: the, this is the time period where they just dwarf China.
0: Well, if China was united, it would be another story, but, but Japan. Japan sees just a bunch of stakes in front of them that are not fighting together, and says, "You know, I really want Manchuria." And as we will see in like 1931, they're going to get their hands in Manchuria, do a lot of illegal, terrible sh- stuff, take it, and they're not—they're going to get hungrier and hungrier and keep taking more and more areas and do horrendous stuff, really terrible stuff. And it's a whole other can of worms to open, but that's going to be the future of this. Um, I think. For the purposes of this episode, though, maybe we'll talk about the future of this channel and why it took so long to make this podcast, which I can publicly talk about now, because finally the word is out if the audience doesn't already know. Uh, but to start off with, uh, what's going to be coming after this episode is going to be uh, not, I won't call it a four-part, like a part one, part two, part three, part four thing. It's going to be a four different episode series on World War One in Asia, which are... Their own episodes because YouTube doesn't like part in videos. That's why I'm actually doing it. And uh, I've already finished all four scripts and I've edited two of the first episodes. They're done, ready to go. I can name them right now. The first one is going to be the battle of uh, the siege of Tsingtao. Good beer, by the way. The second one is going to be German raiders in the Pacific. The third one will be China in World War One, so it's an overall of everything that happens with China, and the fourth one will be Japan during World War One, so everything that involves Japan. Uh, there's some overlapping although I, I'm not obnoxious about it. I really try to keep the subjects different from each other and honestly when you look at World War One in Asia, a huge chunk is actually the siege of Tsingtao and once you get rid of that, it's, it comes together pretty beautifully after. And there's a lot of German stuff in in, in this one and I actually enjoy that because it's words I can pronounce.
1: I'll reserve judgment on that, but uh, ich, uh, <laughs> I, I, I have a feeling there's going to be a few angry Germans in the chat, in the nein, comments after this. But uh, my
0: Deutsch is not so good, aber ich weg. but I to But
1: what was I going to say? Yeah, but we're finally get, we're finally coming up to the time period
0: of the actual Pacific War. It's going to come slowly, slowly, but. The reason why it's slowing down, as maybe some of the longtime viewers will notice, because there's a huge gap between this podcast and the episode, and usually it's been every single week. I've managed to keep this kind of deadline. Uh, Some of you probably already know, I've been working with another uh, YouTube company. Um, It's Kings and Generals. And at this point, two episodes have come out uh, that I wrote the scripts for. The first one was the Battle of Toronto. Uh, The second one is The Defense of Sihang Warehouse, uh, which was interesting because I did a review of the 800 movie on this channel, which is uh, doing very well. Uh, A lot of people like the episode, so I had already learned the actual history to do the episode. So when Kings and Generals was approaching me for ideas, I said this would be be a a great video to do. And the animator who worked uh, with me, an outstanding guy from Germany, he did a whole 3D rendition. I really, go, go watch the episode. It's uh, Kings and Generals YouTube channel, Defense of Seahang Warehouse. It's awesome. I think it's one of the first videos that even does this battle. I don't know if anybody has done it on YouTube before. But in greater news, uh, Kings and Generals has finally announced a project that's coming out, and that's the Pacific War series. So, as you can imagine, they approached a lot of people, and the Pacific War channel was one of them. So I will be working with them in the upcoming future, and I can't say much more than that, but since they finally announced it's coming out, I will be part of this, and it's going to be a huge, huge ride. I can attest to months of work have gone into this, and I am spending every day working on stuff. It's going to be really cool, and uh, it doesn't mean the end of my channel, uh, it just means my channel is going to take a lot longer and I'm probably going to change a lot of the direction of my channel. Cause as far as this podcast is concerned, it's, uh, we're going to see what we're going to do, but, uh, going forward I'm bouncing. He doesn't, doesn't like me anymore. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. But, uh, please do check them out. Um, unless they're not your cup of tea, which just come back to me, hopefully. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, they're, they're great. Love them. Love their work. I've been watching them for years and, uh, they have so many good guys behind them. It's, uh, it's a pleasure working. With them right now. That covers a lot of that. Uh, God, you know what? At during this point, let's bring up the future of this channel a little bit. So we're going to be doing the four-part series on World War One. Then. Now what
1: about the Second Sino-Japanese
0: uh, War? Yeah. So that's going to kick off in 37, or some people even argue at 31 between that is actually going to be kind of interesting. I'm, I'm having a hard time visualizing what to cover between, like, we're going to call it World War I to 1937. There should be episodes in between, but they're going to be boring for a lot of audience members because a lot of audience members don't want to hear about the politics or, like, the small conflicts. Like, you can talk about the warlord era of China and there's literally a bunch of battles every single year where a different regional worlds are fighting over and consolidating their power positions, and even Japan is involved in a lot of these, but it's not um it's not very interesting, I think, for the general like audiences and there's a lot of guys who've done this way back when probably speaking Mandarin do a much better job than I ever could because I'm not fundamentally strong in uh, Chinese history, but uh, I figure. I'll do at least one major episode on the history of uh, China, one on the politics and what is called the government of assassination of Japan, because you have to cover that, because Japan just goes through like the most brutal time with people getting assassinated left, right, and center, and the military just basically takes control. I could even do an episode speaking about uh, more recent information that's coming to the public about the involvement of Emperor Hirohito and how he was controlling a lot of things that were going on in Japan, despite a lot of us being told for like, what, 70 years at this point that he wasn't and that he was kind of a hostage. Mm. Uh, could even make episodes on Southeast Asia countries or a country like the Philippines. I know I have a lot of Filipino uh, viewers who've been talking about when are you going to cover, you know, the great battles of the Philippines. Cause we talked to Pacific war, like the, the invasion of the Philippines and the retaking, it's like, it's a huge part of it. It's very, very interesting and a lot of horrible stuff happens in the Philippines. It's brutal. But uh, we're going to see. I'm bouncing off all the other work I'm doing for the other YouTube channel, too. And I don't want to um, steal from what they're doing by any means. I want to be my own thing. And uh, I think for the most part, this channel will always focus on a chronological order, event by event and that's just the way to go about it and i might have special episodes that talk about you know unique things that people don't know like i've always thought once um the second sino japanese war really kicks off or the the pacific war in general i wanted to talk about things people would never think of like one of the biggest reasons why the american forces won in pacific island warfare was because of food mre rations over what the japanese had if they even had food on these islands it had a huge effect on uh, the battles
1: yeah, you know there's actual full youtube channels dedicated to mres right now that, yeah they taste cool. them they try them out mm-hmm. they talk about the history of them it's uh yeah it's it, like a small niche branch of something but it's it's an interesting history
0: you would never think about it but uh the the influence because i mean people who know the pacific war know that the japanese were basically starving on these islands they were sent there. Their troop ships would get hit before they even get there, so they would show up without supplies, and the Japanese horses would spend most of their time foraging for food. But for those who even had food, you have to imagine this. They were literally lugging like bags of rice on their back. So the Americans, in comparison, have these MREs, you open them up and you eat them, right? If you're a Japanese guy, you have to cook whatever you're carrying, and at night that means you're lighting a fire. Lighting a fire at night means you can get shot by a sniper. So this had a huge effect. You think it's like kind of a joke, but no, it's crazy. Like
1: Not just that, but less time consuming. You can eat
0: and move. You can do... Yeah, I had a professor who talked about the equipment and how that had an effect on all the different, you know, combatants of World War II. Fun fact, uh, the Japanese had the heaviest rifle and the largest bayonet on the rifle out of all the soldiers of the Pacific War and they were arguably the smallest guys. So lugging that around while marching had an effect. Like, they honestly, they were really struggling. And they were underfed, malnourished, lucky if they got to the island I guess, unlucky to be on the island because they would probably starve to death or die of malaria because most people on these Pacific Islands just died of disease and the actual horrible insects, freaking snakes, and whatever else is on the island. like This is one of the most, it's one of the most horrifying wars in human history. And I had a guy ask me to try and describe to him why we don't know so much about the Pacific War compared to World War II in Europe. And I told him, because I remember this is a great quote from some book, and it said, The Pacific War is not a clean war really ugly and that's the truth of it when they were writing the history books of you know heroism and everything and they look at europe and they're like oh yeah you know good versus evil the nazis were and they love that and then they look at the pacific war and it's full of racism atrocities by both sides uh mostly people dying of starvation disease horrifying stuff with the worst mutilation stories you've ever heard, like, stuff you can't even see on YouTube. It's terrifyingly bad. And you just didn't see that in other war, in other battlefields. And, well, the yeah. truth
1: of it is, it doesn't matter what war you look at, uh, e- each side has a perspective. And each side sees themselves to be, quote-unquote, the good guy, if you want to put it that black and white. But when it comes to the Pacific War, I mean, none, none of the motivations were that malicious, I don't think. it, it It's... Oh, God. N- not malicious in the sense of wanting to take over a-, a lesser race or, you know, I think it was just more the fact of keeping your country, your nation, your heritage alive, especially for the Chinese, but also for the Japanese who were overshadowed by them
0: for so long. This was this is why that guy was screaming at me on the in the comment section. Uh, the Japanese—that—that's yeah. an opinion, you know. I think well, it's no. the The, the Japanese—they eventually they they really did drink the Kool Aid. Mm. Like to be honest, uh, Hideki Tojo, which is like the dictator, we'll call him in Japan, the main guy. Uh, he he was a follower of uh, Nazi rhetoric. He 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 read like Mein Kampf most likely, and he followed a lot of the Nazi propaganda, and he tried to incorporate it, not just him, mind you, a lot of people in Japan, the political sphere, they were trying to be like that, because that was, I'll call it, that was being cool, kind of, like, that was seen as, it was an effective way to control it, and the greater East Asia prosperity sphere that the guy went on about against me, over here behind me, like, that's a product of it. They, they tried to have a racial hierarchy, and they were trying to say to the Asian people, like, you're better off under us because the the white man has been dominating you and if you think about it this is very effective this would have worked a lot of people would argue that if the japanese actually walked the walk instead of just talking about it it would have worked but in what really happened was while they're saying all this great stuff about a you know a big asian collective they raped and butchered and murdered all these asian nations and did horrible yeah. things particularly to china so It didn't really work, the propaganda, because, you know, they acted like horrifying barbarians a lot of the time. And you have things like the Rip and then King and stuff.
1: Well, let's not forget, too, we've talked about it in other episodes. Uh, If Japan were to get a little big for its britches and try to go after the whole pie, so to speak, we've said before that I think Russia would have stepped in and put a stop to that because they were the the sleeping bear next to them
0: yeah well like so, I've, i think i've said it multiple times in podcasts and it's always it's always a great shock to americans because americans to, today it's different the history even in high school it's being changed but the narrative has always been that you know america dropped the a-bombs on japan and then it forced the the surrender of the japanese forces and then it ended the war when it's not true and it, it, it's not like an argument really anymore if you read the actual literature, the Soviet Union invading Manchuria the last days of the war did cause the Japanese to surrender. The Japanese were in a period of weeks upon which they were looking for the best deal, so to say. And the Soviets had not breached a neutrality pact with them, so they were technically not at war. And it's a very confusing thing, and it actually goes by the hour because there's meetings that are held between the two bombs dropping. And that's what's really apparent as to why they surrendered. But when the Jap, when the uh, the Russian Soviet Union did invade and they took over Manchuria and they bulldozed them, they completely bulldozed them, uh, it was the last hope of yeah, any well, Japan hands.
1: realized they couldn't fight USA on one side yeah, and Russia on the other. It just wouldn't have been a thing
0: and again it's hard for especially like people in the western world to understand that manchuria was more of a priority than any pacific island at this point because it it, it was the lifeblood of japan like their entire economy was built off manchuria because when you invest into an area for this long everything is is bound to it so when the russians did that like it threatened the most important part of japan and they were looking to secure as much of what they had gained over the years as they could because they knew by forty the end of forty three that Japan knew all leaders knew they were done. Like Mm-mm. they were done. And anyways, this is a whole can of works. A lot of Americans probably get angry in comments after this. Probably. <laughs> but you know what, if the Americans want to hear something, were the atomic bombs necessary? Yes. Not for the surrender of Japan. They were necessary to stop the Soviet Union from taking Japan. Because a lot of arguments can be made that Nagasaki's bomb in particular was dropped just to kind of threaten the Soviets and to stop them from going any further at which they eventually stopped in the parallel in North yeah, because
1: Korea. once they decided to go and took Manchuria there's nothing to say they couldn't have tried to keep steamrolling the whole
0: Well, they went all the way to Korea Yeah, and uh, the number one Japanese army that sat around doing nothing throughout the entire war was sitting in northern Manchuria in case the Soviets attacked and they were just bulldozed didn't Nothing. I didn't even face. It. It, it it's it's crazy how how bad it was. But anyways, we went really off topic. Uh this was on okay. the uh Qinghai Revolution and finally there was a Republic of China and it's looking still depress it's still depressing. The hundred years of humiliation are still gonna happen, mind yeah. you. Well I mean we're in the early nineteen hundreds now, we're right before
1: World War One. It's uh oh um, we're, we're, we're getting interesting
0: i'll finish off with this uh for audience members from mainland china i really tried to hit stuff that people don't talk about when it comes to world war one in china because if you know the history on you know you, you would think it's the 21 demands and stuff and you know, more humiliation more terrible things happening to the chinese people i actually tried to think more outside the box and uh, i found a lot of interesting stuff uh, that has to deal with you know the civil war in russia And uh, Chinese laborers uh, on the Western Front and the Eastern Front uh, who were kind of the guys breaking their backs, doing the work Mm. in the back scenes. Because the country remained neutral and couldn't technically bring soldiers to the Western Front. But they were there in numbers. So it's an interesting story, and China played its part. So, yeah. Hmm. Uh, I think that's good enough.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know. Like I said, we're getting into a really interesting time period. A lot of stuff's going to kick off, but uh, here, why don't we end with a quiz? I'm going to quiz you about this time period and see if I know something you don't. Self-proclaimed expert on uh, history and naval battles and all these things, right? right. What ship was sunk in the early 1900s that had the most casualties? Mr. Like, Mr. Expert with your Battle of Midway and all this.
0: I don't know. Most casualties. Uh-huh. Uh, no
1: no Googling. Don't touch that laptop. Is this during Come on, a war? See, I'm, 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 stumping, I'm stumping the historian here.
0: Is this during a Come war? On. Huh? This is before World War II.
1: Yes. I'll give you that. Oh, my God. Do, do, do I need Ian here, the expert on the Yamato and all these other ships?
0: Uh, I would assume it's like a German... Well, I don't know. Th- I'll
1: tell you what. I'll even sweeten the pot a little bit. You don't have to give me the name of the ship. Just give me where it was from. Not necessarily where it was built, but where it was going from, or something like that. Britain. Mm. You think
0: Britain? Sure. Trick question. Was it Titanic? Ah! I knew it was gonna be the Titanic. But they didn't easy. have that many. Ca- they didn't have that many dead. A lot of people got rescued though. A, a lot of like twelve. No, a lot of people got rescued. They didn't all like, it's not like the movie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm aware. Okay, we're not going to talk about the Titanic. I'm just saying. Okay, we're going to end off. Easy trick question. This has been the Pacific War Channel, and there was more than enough room on the door for both Jack and Rose to survive. Boom.